This is your Tuesday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Hope you're all having a good day out there today. Lots to get to today. Andrew Kramer covers the Vikings for the Star Tribune. will be with me here in just a few minutes to talk about the draft. That is two days from now. At least it starts two days from now. Vikings have the number 12 overall pick, second round pick, third round pick, all that good stuff. Andrew and I will get into positions of need, um, who the Vikings might be looking at with that number 12 pick, but also more importantly, how this year's draft might be run differently than years past with Kwesi Adolfo Mensa now in charge instead of Rick Spielman. So good, uh, good breakdown from Andrew, a lot of good information in there, so you won't want to miss that. Got to talk about Kevin Fiala for a little bit, too, at the end of the show because he is having a monster season, just named the number two star in the NHL uh, for the second week in a row. 33 goals, 51 assists. Are they going to be able to keep him next season on the wild? Got to get to a Kyrie Irving quote, too, after the uh, Nets were swept by the Celtics. But first, what did I miss? Got to talk Wolves at the jump here. Big game five against Memphis coming up here on Tuesday night. Obviously, the series now tied 2-2 going back to Memphis for this pivotal game five. Obviously, you know, it goes without saying, but the winner of a game five in a series tied 2-2 gains a massive advantage in the series if it is Memphis. Uh, winning this game, they'll have a chance to close out the Wolves in Game 6 back at Target Center. If it is the Wolves, same thing. They would have a home game with a chance to close out Memphis in Game 6 should they win this game. Both teams have taken one game on the other team's home court. It's been a fascinating <clears throat> kind of series so far from a lot of different standpoints because you can break it down a lot of different ways, right? You can break it down from a standpoint of, you know, Game three, the Wolves lost that huge lead. Game four, Memphis probably got um, maybe a little bit complacent. They complained about the officiating, missed their opportunity to really seize control of the series. You know, so it's kind of been a story of each team maybe letting the series out of their grip a little bit and uh, not not really taking control of it when they could. And now it's inescapable, right? One of these teams is going to take a huge amount of control in the series, not like game five. You know, will determine the outcome for sure. The next two, t- the the team that loses tonight could obviously win games six and game seven. But you win tonight, you've got to feel good about your chances. And for the Wolves to do that, there are going to be a few things they need to do. First things first. Chris Hine wrote about this in today's Star Tribune. They are going to have to work hard on rebounding. They were one of the worst rebounding teams during the regular season, especially on the defensive end. They barely got 70% of defensive rebounds available to them during the regular season. That was the 28th or third worst mark in the league. Memphis, on the other hand, historically good offensive rebounding team. So when the Wolves have been able to control the glass, which was games one and game four, they have won games in this series when they have let Memphis get on the glass, get those second-chance points, that has spelled trouble for them. And it cuts two different ways, right? If you're getting defensive rebounds, 
you're not only keeping the other team from getting second chance points, you're getting out in transition potentially and getting some easy baskets, which the Wolves have absolutely needed in this series to not have to you know rely too heavily on their half-court offense. So doubly important in that regard. The Wolves are going to have to keep Memphis off the offensive glass. Number two, got to stay out of foul trouble, especially Carl Anthony Towns. This, is, this series has been determined in a lot of cases by officiating, by, you know, what calls are going, what way. Memphis complained about it after game four. Wolves fans have complained about it at various points in this series. Can Carl Anthony Towns not only stay out of foul trouble, but stay on the court enough to have a meaningful impact on this game? Same goes for guys like Jaden McDaniels, who is very foul prone. On the flip side, can the Wolves get Memphis into foul trouble? Jaron Jackson Jr., has been in a lot of foul trouble in this series, especially in Game 4, has had a hard time staying on the court. He impacts things defensively very significantly when he is on the court. If they can get him into some quick foul trouble, that will open things up considerably for them on the offensive end. So foul trouble will be a big part of this game as well. Can the Wolves kind of, you know, can they just keep their composure enough? Can they, you know, if they get into a little foul trouble, can they keep it from snowballing? Things of that nature. And finally, can the Wolves, like I just mentioned, kind of harness all of the emotion, all of the swirl of this series? They did a great job in game four of, you know, coming back, getting off the mat, whatever cliche you want to use after that game three collapse and winning that game to make this a series again. Now, where do they go from here? Can they sustain? that energy? Can they make it so they're not just happy to be here? I mean, let's face it, this franchise has not had a lot of playoff success. This is just the fourth time in franchise history that they've even won two games in a playoff series. I mean, my goodness, you got to go back to, you know, they they took, a lot of these were best of five back in the day, but they took Seattle to a fifth game in the second time they made the playoffs in the 97-98 season. Um, They, of course, took a took the Lakers um, in 2002-2003 to a sixth game in the first round before they lost, so they won two games that year. And then, of course, the year they went to the Western Conference Finals, they, of course, won a whole bunch of playoff games. They won 10 playoff games that season. But since then, during a lot of that run, they were either getting swept or losing one. When they played the Rockets a few years ago, they only won one playoff game. So this is, you know, uncharted territory, not quite, but this is rare territory for this franchise to be in this position. Can they harness that emotion and can fans just allow themselves to enjoy this, right? I mean, I think I think the Wolves at this point have exceeded anyone's expectations from the start of the year. Now it's time to get greedy, right? Now it's time to say, okay, you have done this. Can you now do that? And that doesn't mean you're disappointed if they don't do that, but it does mean there is an opportunity here for them in this game to seize control of this series and maybe win this series and if you win this series these western these western conference playoffs like Patrick Royce and I talked about the other day they are wide open right now there is an opportunity here that uh, does not happen every year so can they seize that opportunity we will find out i am excited to watch and you will be too take a playcation to mystic lake for 24/7 gaming fun restaurants and bars and luxurious hotel rooms and join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. 
Now, before we get to Andrew Kramer, I got to play a clip from Kyrie Irving after the Nets were eliminated in four games, a sweep at the hands of the red-hot Celtics, acknowledging that maybe by not playing a lot of games this year because he wasn't vaccinated, that maybe he was a distraction. Gee, Kyrie, do you think? Here he is. We all felt it. Um, I, I felt like I was letting the team down uh, at, a, at a point where I wasn't able to play. Um, you know, we were trying to exercise every option for me to play, but I, I never wanted to just be about me. And I think it, it became a distraction at times. And, um, you know, as you see, we just had some drastic changes. You know, we, we lost a um, franchise player and uh, we got a franchise player back. But, uh, you know, we didn't get a chance to, to see him on the floor. And um, there was no pressure for him either to step on the floor with us either. You know what I mean? Like, Ben Ben's good. We have been. We have his back. He's going to be good for next year. But now we just we just turn the page and uh, look forward to what we're building as a franchise and and really get tougher. Hey, good for him. At least he acknowledged it. But my goodness, that uh, that maybe came a little bit too late in the year for my tastes. Happy to be joined today by Andrew Kramer. Covers the Vikings, of course, for the Star Tribune. Um, Andrew, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this on the Access Vikings podcast later this week, but I wanted to have you on just to talk a little bit of draft here on Daily Delivery. Just, you know, NFL draft is Thursday. Vikings have the number 12 overall pick. Picks in the second and third round as well. Plenty of needs coming off of two straight seasons where they, you know, missed the playoffs. They weren't, you know, abject failures. They were contending to try to get to the playoffs, but enough went wrong that they you know, overhauled the people in charge anyway. And that makes this draft interesting, right? I mean, Kwesi Adolfo Mensah in charge of this draft for the first time. Rick Spielman, you know, we all knew his predilection for trading back and accumulating all those seventh rounders and things like that. I guess right off the bat, Andrew, how do you imagine Kwesi Adolfo Mensah will run this draft, obviously in conjunction with, with everybody else that has input into these decisions. Yeah, this will be fascinating because it is Kwesi's first time as, as the head guy, right? He's been big, a big part of drafts in Cleveland under Andrew Barry in 2020 and 2021. Um, he was also obviously a bigger part of San Francisco's drafts before that, after he got some promotions under John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan over there, but he's always been the quant guy, the numbers guy. So now that he has to take that whole big picture and put everything in the traditional scouting aspects of it, what everybody's saying at the table, and then make that decision on his own, uh, this is somewhere he's never been before. And so I do wonder how much is he going to lean on his own knowledge of what the different algorithms and all, when all the data gets put together from the combine, the pro day drills, what the GPS data says from college football, all that stuff, how much is he going to lean on that versus what his scouts are telling him, which for the most part under a new regime are still largely the same. The Vikings have not changed a lot of their traditional scouting guys. They brought in Ryan Grigson as a number two, basically the former Colts GM who was also in Cleveland the past couple of years, but Jamal Stevenson, the director of college scouting along with Ryan Monins, they're still there. Many of the scouts are still there from the previous Vikings regime. So it'll be very fascinating to see whose voice kind of grabs the ear of Quasi's the most and how much he kind of goes out on his own. But this draft, 
I could imagine him, Quasey, being very, very intrigued by a lot of the guys who were standing out as these combine stars, these freak athletes, these guys who, when you put them up in the you know, NFL next-gen stats, they rank up in the 90, 95 percentiles of um, you know, composite scores when it comes to compared to their position mates, how much they stand out as these premier athletes. Um, I think those guys might be the ones that kind of go – farther to the top of the Vikings draft board. I think Rick Spielman often talked about analytics is just a piece of the puzzle and Quasey likes to say the same thing. However, this is the first general manager in the NFL's history who comes from a primary analytical background. You have to imagine that's going to be a bigger piece of the puzzle in this Vikings draft than it has been in the past under Rick Spielman. So um, I also liked what just personally, when Quasey talked at the combine about positional value and what he you know, how does he weigh what positions are you going to prioritize? Um, it's not just need. He talked about them almost as, as superheroes and saying, from what position can you save the most people in the organization? He talked about quarterbacks. He talked about pass rushers. Um, you can read between the lines on that and broaden that. It seems to be guys who affect the passing game. This regime understands it's a passing league. I don't think that they're going to draft run stoppers early. I don't think they're going to draft running backs early. They are going to draft guys who affect the passing game because those guys can have the biggest impact in today's NFL. So um, cornerbacks, for instance, that's the big one with the Minnesota Vikings often in these mock drafts. So I, I would have to imagine when you're reading between the lines and what they say and what they've said so far, that's kind of how I envision this, this regime kind of moving forward. And that's interesting because I was going to ask you about how they, you know, how they might view different positions differently from, you know, Rick Spielman. And certainly Mike Zimmer had a certain way he wanted to play defense, still valued stopping the run, you know, getting getting teams into third down and then getting off the field. Essentially, sounds like this this regime will definitely prioritize things differently. Like you said, probably won't be drafting running backs high or paying them, you know, into the deep into their careers, things like that. Is that kind of a sneaky way that this could, you know, we could start to see their philosophy unfold, not just like you said, by drafting for need, but by drafting for, you know, what they value the most in, in the, and how a player impacts the game they want to play. I do because too, when you look back in, in one of the biggest influences on Quasey in his career was Andrew Barry, who's the Cleveland Browns general manager. He comes from more of a scouting traditional background, but when you look at how, those two brains came together for Cleveland in the past two drafts. Uh, it was a lot of the same passing impact players. It was two defensive backs, Greg Newsom, the corner out of Northwestern, Grant Delpit, the safety out of LSU. It was a tackle and Jedrick Wills out of Alabama. And it was that coverage linebacker, JOK out of Notre Dame. Those are all guys that are built to and, and drafted to directly impact to either stop pass rushers, stop the pass, um, or in JOK's spot, be able to match up with these freak hybrid slot receivers, tight ends, all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be guys who have more of that skill set. And I think that's going to be the biggest difference with the Vikings is I don't think you're going to one of Rick Spielman's things was drafting fourth round linebackers out of Big Ten schools or something like that because they're good, you know, three down or a third, excuse me, first and second down run stoppers. I just don't see that being a thing with the Vikings here, um, or for instance, Dalvin cook in the second round, Alexander Madison in the third round, um, running backs are great, but I think more forward thinking front offices tend to find that they're interchangeable or more interchangeable than other positions and ones that you can find later in drafts or in undrafted territories. So I think that's going to be a big shift here. Um, it's, it's a lot less of the old school thinking and more of the new school. How can we 
press forward in this passing age and set your Kirk Cousins jokes aside, I guess. Well, I mean, he's <laughs> yeah, I, they, they've made their they've they've made their commitment to to Cousins, so we can kind of rule quarterback out at number twelve, I would imagine. But a cornerback, like you said, seems to be what is being mocked to them most frequently, almost unanimously, whether it's Derek Stingley Jr., if he's still around, whether it's one of the other, you know, top, you know, top end first round corners. Um, I mean, you hate to go into this thinking it's a, it's a done deal, but that does seem like it's a position of need meeting a certain value and kind of intersecting with how they value stopping the passing game. Yeah, even though they brought back Patrick Peterson, it was just a one-year deal, and you do wonder if they still view Peterson as a, a bona fide number one guy, and they need long-term options at corner. It's not just stopgap guys like Peterson, like I said, is on just a one-year deal. Um, how much can you rely on Cameron Dantzler to develop into a uh, reliable outside corner? Because so far he has yet to show that in two years. So I think there's a lot, while there's a lot of smoke about taking a corner at number 12, I think there's a lot of fire to and reason to do it because they this is supposed to be a really good class for that, really good deep class for that. And even if you don't land one of the top guys, maybe you look to trade back and take one of the number three, four, or five ranked corners on your board and do that later in the first round. I found it interesting that I think it was ESPN's Adam Schefter reported today that there's been a lot more interest in trading back in this draft than there has been in trading up. So the only way the Vikings might be able to find a way to do that is if you've got one of these quarterback needy teams, which they happen to be sitting in front of, whether it's the Steelers or the Saints. Um, maybe you can maybe you can drop back a little bit and pick up an Andrew Booth out of Clemson, who's you know often projected to be that number three or four corner, or Trent McDuffie out of Washington, a more undersized but very polished corner who could step in right away for you and maybe even play the slot where they lost Mackenzie Alexander this offseason. Um, I think there are a lot of options for them at that position. And it, it just makes a lot of sense because outside of edge rusher, maybe wide receiver, I just don't see too many other spots um, that make a lot of sense for them in that first round. Like you said, though, I mean, it's, it's things happen in the first round. There can be a, a run on corners. Teams can like certain guys jump in front of the Vikings or just flat out pick guys ahead of them. If the value doesn't match the need, I can't imagine them forcing it if you can't trade down if you're kind of like okay we're on the clock at 12 but we don't think there's a corner there that matches that value then what do you do what do, what do you think is the next likely next most likely scenario for them to, to pursue at number 12 yeah i wonder if one of these top wide receivers gets pushed down i i know adam Thielen. this this would be a different conversation if they had moved on from adam Thielen. then you'd be saying wide receivers like a top need next to justin jefferson but They've not only strengthened their commitment to Thielen this year with the restructure, they strengthened it next year as well. You can basically pen in Thielen for these next two years, even though he's 32 entering this year, but they need more speed. They need more depth at wide receiver. I think KJ Osborne showed you last year he can be that guy, but if you're at 12 and you're staring at Garrett Wilson out of Ohio State, or you think Jamison Williams out of Alabama, who did tear his ACL in that national championship game, but if you view him as worth that pick, or Chris Olave out of Ohio State, there's, there's a few options that could be sitting there at 12 and you're thinking, you know, this may not be how we drew it up, but this is one of the top talents and we're just going to go for it. And, and because they might be viewing that passing game importance as worth kind of taking a chance on a wide receiver and Justin Jefferson, I'm not, I'm not saying you're going to move on from him, but at some point you might be looking at what 25 million a year, if not more, 
you might be thinking, we'd like to at least have some options at this position because you never know how negotiations work out in this league. And this is a very talented and very fast wide receiver class. And if you're looking at one thing this team and this receiver core really needs, I think it's some speed downfield. I know Jefferson can do it all, but guys outside of him, you don't have somebody that other teams are going to be afraid of, hey, this guy can go 40 yards really quickly up past us down the field. And this draft class has a lot of them. And not just at number 12, but maybe in rounds two or three, if they don't go that route, I think they can find a lot of speed at wide receiver for sure. Has Quesi Dofomenza given any kind of indications as to like whether he likes to be thinking about trades, things like that? Is he like predisposed to that? Some people get that reputation. Rick Spielman certainly did through the years and just, you know, in the number of trades he did end up making during during the draft. Do we have any indication that, you know, Quesi likes the idea of wheeling and dealing or anything like that? Yeah, it's interesting because the Vikings, while they were known for that with Rick, um, George Payton was basically their kind of draft day trade guy as well. And he's on now leading the, the Denver Broncos um, front office. And then so Ryan Monins, one of their directors of college scouting, he stepped in and started doing a lot of that last year. He's still here. And so you wonder with just the brain trust that's left over in that building. Yeah, maybe they're more inclined to still kind of scour all of their options and doing that. And, you know, Quasey's the kind of guy who's going to want as many data points as possible. He's going to want all the information as possible. Who's willing to move up? Who's willing to move back? And I think they're going to feel everything out in the same way. I haven't heard anything from Quasey directly that would make me think, yes, he wants to do one way or the other, stay put or not. Um, but when you look at his past history, you look at what he's talked about with Andrew Barry, he has mentioned, you know, they would text late at night about draft day or um, just regular NFL trade scenarios from, you know, four years down the road when they project contract situations. I think these are guys that are always thinking about the stone that is not unturned at some point. And so I wouldn't be shocked to see them really looking at this draft, seeing how there's not a lot of top end talent, but a lot of depth at a lot of these positions and thinking, yeah, maybe we want to trade back and collect more ammunition. Speaking of that depth, it's not just about the first round and the 12th overall pick. They have what six other picks, including a second rounder and a third rounder. Don't have that fourth. Thanks, Rick Spielman. Thanks, Chris Herndon. But uh, there you go. But uh, they do have the second and the third rounders still. And like you said, they could even accumulate more if they decide to trade down and find a willing partner um, that's it with the draft capital they have, what else do you feel like they will be attempting to address or will be able to address in this draft? I really think defensive tackle is a sneaky need for them. And it's, it's one, because when you switch to a three, four, you're playing a five man front. Essentially you're playing two stand up outside linebackers, three down linemen. They've got their two stand up outside linebackers now and Daniel Hunter and Zadarius Smith. What they don't really have are those, what you call three, four defensive ends, which are more defensive tackle type prospects who play over directly over the tackles, offensive tackles that is. And so you've got one in Dalvin Tomlinson, but this is his last year under contract. You've got your nose tackle. You just signed in Harrison Phillips uh, right now, your other defensive tackle that's lining up and there's Armin Watts and he's also in a contract year. And so whether or not you think Armin is going to be a starter or it has that potential you also don't have them signed long-term. I think they need some more options inside. And this is a draft class where I think there are a lot of guys on that day two, second round, third round, that could come in and help them and be those kinds of pro projects or um, rotational guys because they really need some depth in there. And this is also going to be a defense that plays a lot of nickel. So they are going to transition to a traditional four-man front quite often. 
But when you are in those first and second down scenarios, I just don't see them having a lot of options inside. And so I think defensive tackle is a sneaky need. I think they could even go tight end because Irv Smith Jr., this is his final year under contract. He needs to show this new regime that he can be a guy for them. And right now they've only got Johnny Munt, who's the the Rams blocking tight end. He's not that kind of pass catcher. He's just more of an H-back, fullback kind of guy, a guy who can kind of help and play a similar C.J. Ham role almost. They don't have a lot of pass catching options behind Irv Smith. And so even long-term, not just this year. So I think tight ends also a potential need for them in day two. And then, of course, the interior offensive line, we're always talking about that. But it wouldn't shock me, even though they made some signings in free agency, some low-level signings, it wouldn't shock me to see them draft maybe round two or round three. Uh, Another guard option, another center option. It does seem like Garrett Bradbury is going to get the shot to be the starter this year at center. But this is also going to be his final year under contract. So maybe some depth there would help them quite a bit. I was going to ask you about offensive line because I saw you got a question in the mailbag about Garrett Bradbury and kind of where they're at with that. They seem to have an interesting philosophy about the offensive line where not like it doesn't matter, but they almost, you know, I've talked to Ben Gessling, our colleague about this and how they just kind of feel like they can almost scheme things up to the point that, you know, having, you know, five great people across the offensive line isn't as important to them as, as, as we might think, especially seems counterintuitive given how much they value the passing game, but it, it seems, it does seem like they like certain things or are, are, are okay enough with certain things and deficiencies with some guys that we've seen to, uh, to approach it a certain way. So I am curious to see what they do at, at those positions. And frankly, you know, it's a, they, they drafted a guard in the third round last year. And if that's not working out, that, that does show you that they might have to do it again. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess with Wyatt Davis, maybe they want to get some, some of their own kind of firsthand experience with him before totally judging him as a prospect right now. But with the way they've added in free agency with just all these options, I guess you'd call them, they're not bona fide starters, but you bring in Jesse Davis, who started a lot of games in Miami, you bring in Chris Reed who played for the Colts. Um, those are two guards that with Ole Udo, with Wyatt Davis, they're not bringing in a lot of um, guys that aren't just competing. And so it makes me think that you might want to bring in another draft prospect who could compete with them and give you another potential option at that spot. But talking with people around the league, and, and I brought up this quote to you before, but Daniel Jeremiah with the NFL media, he brought up at the combine that, you know, this is a team that's going to be with under Kevin O'Connell is going to be throwing early. They're not going to be getting themselves into a lot of running on first and 10, running on second and 10. And then now Kirk is stuck in third and 11. Uh, their hope is to get Kirk in more of these third and mediums, these third and shorts, where you are setting up the defense to not just pin their ears back and destroy Ole Udo up the middle. They are hoping that not just with the scheme, but with the situations and scenarios that they're getting themselves in more advantageous spots. And I think that goes along with being a more progressive play caller on offense and not just running into walls on first and second down because it's just what you do. Um, That was one of the more... I think old school and kind of stone age things this offense was doing under Mike Zimmer. And so I think that progression will help the offensive line. And it does seem to think to me, when you look at Quasey's background with Andrew Barry, when you looked at what they prioritized, they did pay guys like JC Treader and Joel Petonio. But in general, when they didn't have those bona fide guys there, they weren't drafting them. They weren't really trying to prioritize that in free agency if they didn't already have them on the roster, they were prioritizing offensive tackles. 
And you heard Kwesi say at the combine, thank God you guys have two good tackles and mentioning Brian O'Neill and Christian Derrissaw. That to me says that those are the spots you prioritize to stop the, the, to try to stop the best edge rushers in the NFL. And then you kind of make do with your interior, whatever, with whether it's scheme uh, situations, all that stuff. I just do not see them drafting uh, a center, for instance, in the first round, uh, or maybe even the second. I think if they're going to draft some competition or another option there, it's probably the third round or later. They do have the film that we've seen of of, uh, of Garrett Bradbury, right? Of just getting absolutely knocked over. <laughs> Did they have access to that like we do or not? <laughs> it was, I would hope so. It, it was surprising to hear Kevin O'Connell be as effusive about Bradbury as he was. Um, because I'd asked him at the combine, I said, well, he's had some ups and downs. Like, what are you seeing? And he went back as far as his college tape and, and tried to find some, some good things to say about him. So I, I think there's a reason why you're going to see them decline his fifth year option, obviously. Uh, and the reason why they're not going to make a commitment beyond his last year of his rookie deal, because this guy's got a lot to prove to overcome what is really a, 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 what he's worth, which is a bust label at this point. Sounds good. Well, we'll see how it all unfolds starting Thursday with that number 12 overall pick. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm sure we'll have a little bit more breakdown to this on Access Vikings later this week. Andrew Kramer, good stuff. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks. Great stuff from Andrew. Like I said, we'll do an Access Vikings here in a day or so to uh, to talk through the draft in a little bit more detail. But Andrew does a great job covering that. Read all of our coverage, Star Tribune and StarTribune.com. Let's finish with the cooler. Kevin Fiala for the Wild, like I said at the jump, having a fantastic season. 33 goals, 51 assists, if not for the pace that Kirill Kaprizov is on, might be talked about even more on this team. But part of a balanced offense, part of a team that gets scoring up and down the lineup. Now, the big question is, you know, A, how is he going to be able to sustain this through the regular season and into the playoffs because he did not have a great playoffs last year? And B, can the Wild afford Kevin Fiala next season. He's a, he's a, he'll be a free agent going into this year. They did not pay him, did not give him that big contract last offseason. Kind of wanted to see him prove it. Well, he has proven it. And now what? Now we're going to be able to pay him and Matt Dumba. Are you going to be pay, able to pay him and, you know, player X? You know, we've talked about this before, but the salary cap is going to start shrinking on them with Zach Parisi and Ryan Suter's buyouts hitting the books hard in the next few years. That is going to impact decisions on players like Kevin Fiala, guys looking to get paid for their production, and he absolutely deserves it based on this year. Will the Wild be able to keep him? It's going to be a fascinating offseason once whatever the Wild is doing this year, and it could be a special off, it could be a special postseason once that is finished up. That will do it for me today. Plenty of Wolves coverage coming up on Wednesday show off of Game 5. We'll have Sarah McClellan on Thursday show to talk wild as well as they gear up for the playoffs. So playoffs, playoffs, playoffs. We are not used to that this time of year, but we will take it. Thanks for joining me. I'm Michael Rand. We'll be back at it again on Wednesday.